Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for listening to this Heritage Foundation event. Every day, the Heritage Foundation holds important events with respected and influential leaders and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program. and welcome to the Heritage Foundation. My name is Colleen Harmon, and I'm the Program Associate of the Young Leaders Internship Program here at Heritage. At this time, please take a moment to silence your phones and other devices. It is my pleasure this evening to introduce Dr. Kim Holmes, the Executive Vice President at the Heritage Foundation, who will be giving some introductory remarks in our libertarianism versus conservatism debate. Dr. Holmes? Good evening, everybody. What a great event. Really honored to be able to welcome all of you to the Heritage Foundation. This is an event that all of us have uh, eagerly anticipated, the annual event of the the Heritage and Cato Intern Debate. Uh, Interns at both of the institutions have been hard at work all summer. Uh, They have come to the end of of their time in Washington, and this debate makes a fitting capstone to the experiences that all of you have had this year. I want to thank everyone here for their attendance and for those that are viewing online. I understand that this is the first time, uh, perhaps even the first time ever, that this event has been here at Heritage. And so I want to welcome everyone, all of you from Cato to the Heritage Foundation. I would, in fact, like to especially to thank and welcome all of our Cato colleagues who helped make this event possible. Uh, Mark Hauser, the student program manager. Uh, Katie Ranville, the student program's coordinator. And I'd also like to thank our moderator this evening, Stephanie Slade from Reason Magazine. And of course, I I welcome all of you uh, to Heritage and to Cato, uh, all of you uh, who have been involved in the intern uh, debates and all the interns who have done much hard work for this year, much research and much thought and preparation have gone in to make this event a great event. Libertarians and conservatives uh, both advocate individual liberty, uh, limited government, and free markets. And sometimes these shared values lead libertarians and conservatives to similar conclusions about public policy. And I think these similarities are significant and something that we should all recognize. But there are also differences in how each apply these philosophies to the policy issues that are facing our nation. We are here this evening to investigate and to debate these principles from different angles, from different viewpoints, and from different frames of reference. There will be points scored, there will be arguments defended and refuted, and there will certainly be a lively exchange. 
And there will also be, of course, a discussion afterwards about who won and who lost. And that proposition is, is libertarianism or conservatism the superior political philosophy? But our efforts here this evening, frankly, are not all about policy or political philosophy or even differences of opinion or who wins or loses. As we look across the landscape of public discourse, there is a sense that the lines around civil free speech are hardening in the news, on college campuses, and on social media. The debate now seems no longer a catalyst for individual intellectual growth, but instead for group confrontation. I think we are gathered here this evening to affirm our commitment from both Heritage Foundation and from Cato that the ideas that can be debated freely and vigorously, but also can be done in, in a uh, spirit of civility and in good fellowship. That the free exchange of ideas and opinions and the right to express these opinions is the cornerstone of American public life. The great English poet John Milton said, give me the liberty to know, to utter, and to argue freely according to conscience, and to have these above all liberties. A respectful exchange and debate provide both an opportunity to learn from others and also to sharpen one's own thinking, which after all are the hallmarks of a free and engaged and informed citizenry. Now I hope that all of you enjoy uh, tonight's debate. Uh, it's something that will, I'm sure, allow us to, to strengthen and defend all of the commitments that we have to free speech and to civil public discourse that I hope all of you will take back to your workplaces, to your schools, and to, to all of the friends and families that you have. Be advocates of these principles, wherever you and however you can, and know that these principles of free speech and freedom of thought will be on display here tonight, notwithstanding the differences they, they may have on how they interpret them. So I wish all of you uh, on up here to have uh, the very best of luck. Uh, I'd like to get started, but I want to also say, as I said to you in private, let the best philosophy win. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you, Dr. Holmes. I do have a few notes to our audience before our debate begins. We will have a reception immediately following the conclusion of the debate in Allison Foyer and on our rooftop. There will be ushers outside the auditorium who will guide you using the stairs or the elevators. We ask that audience members remain quiet through the duration of the event, except for applause. We certainly share your enthusiasm for the ideas presented, but hope you'll be respectful to our panelists who are not professional debaters and who have limited time to express hundreds of years of political philosophy and history. However, there will be time during the debate for questions from the audience. Please wait to be called upon by the moderator and for the microphone to reach you. If you're viewing in our overflow spaces or online, you may send your questions to speaker at heritage.org. Importantly, we encourage you to join the debate and to share your thoughts on social media by using the hashtag, hashtag LVCDebate on Twitter and Instagram, which you can see on our screens. We would appreciate your thoughts on the debate by participating in a quick survey, which will be emailed to you following the debate, and will give you a chance to contribute your thoughts on what questions or exchanges were most interesting and who you believe ultimately won the debate. 
I would remind you that the name of this event is called Libertarianism versus Conservatism, not Heritage versus Cato. And as such, the debate, the debate will not represent or officially speak on behalf of either think tank. So please bear this in mind as you think about and post publicly about the debate. We would like to add my gratitude to my colleagues here at Heritage and our conference services, lectures and seminars, IT, media, policy promotion, communications, and event planning for assisting me with the logistics of the event. And also like to thank Mark, Katie, Neil, and Mackenzie at Cato, who have been invaluable in coordination. Lastly, I regret to tell you, as you will probably already know, that our scheduled moderator, Charles C.W. Cook from National Review, was un unable to make it this evening due to an emergency. Our thoughts are certainly with him this evening, and we wish him all the best. But perhaps it's a testament to the popularity of this topic and the importance of this debate that we rather quickly found a moderator who is ready to meet the challenge. It is my pleasure this evening to introduce you to Stephanie Slade, who is the managing editor of Reason Magazine. In 2016, she was selected to the Robert Novak Journalism Fellowship. In 2013, she was named a finalist of the Bastiat Prize for Journalism. Previously, she worked as a pollster, a speechwriter, and a regular contributor to the U.S. News and World Report. Please join me in welcoming Stephanie Slade. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Uh, a few of you may have noticed that I'm not Charlie Cook. Uh, I can assure you that no one is more disappointed about that than me. He's brilliant, and it's uh, rather intimidating to be trying to fill his shoes, but I will do my best tonight. Um, when I found out that this position of debate moderator for libertarianism versus conservatism was coming was open because the you know the, the person who had been previously scheduled couldn't make it, I wasn't that surprised that they would approach me because uh, on the one hand I I do identify as a small L libertarian. Uh, on the other hand, unlike virtually all of my colleagues, uh, I actually go to church, which <laughs> uh, is uh, exceptional at reason. So. Um, that makes you basically the token conservative around there. Tonight's debate, tonight's debate will take uh, the form of five sections. There will be first introductory remarks and responses from both teams. Second will be uh, a topical debate. So I've selected four topics and each team will debate, discuss those topics. The third section will be uh, persuasion. Each team will try to convince you of why the other side should be should should come over to the dark side, as it were. The fourth section will be question and answer, and so that'll be a chance for you all to weigh in. And I'll take questions from the audience and from people who email email questions in who might be watching from from online. And then each side will have a chance to make their concluding remarks. So first up tonight is going to be our conservatives. Uh, to give their opening statement, and then we'll we'll move along to the libertarians. So I would invite you up to the podium at this time. Thank you all for coming. G.K. <laughs> Chesterton once told a parable about a professor who owned a small canary. And the professor thought to himself one day, you know, I think this canary would be a lot happier outside the cage. And so he opened the door to the cage, and the canary flew out uh, and around the room. And then he flew out an open window and was promptly eaten by a much bigger and presumably much hungrier bird. The point of this story for Chesterton was pretty simple. Just because a man is liberated from his restraints does not necessarily make him 
free. Conservatives and libertarians share a love for liberty, and it's made us potent political partners on a number of issues. Our support for the free market, our opposition to the regulatory state, and our support for the rights of all individuals. But where we disagree, and where the crux of this debate lies, is over the nature and extent of that freedom. The question of tonight's debate is not, should we desire freedom, but rather, what kind of freedom should we desire? We conservatives think we have a few answers. Conservatism, as a political philosophy, is animated by the principle espoused in the preamble to our Constitution. The goal of government is to secure the blessings of liberty for ourselves and our posterity. Now, this historic phrase teaches us two important lessons. First, not all liberty leads to blessings. Just ask Chesterton's Canary. Only ordered liberty does that. And second, we have a duty to preserve liberty for our descendants. But if we are to pass the torch of liberty from us to our children and from our children to their children, our society must promote things like personal responsibility, the value of faith and family, and positive duties to others in our communities. We can rob the future of their freedom by both overregulation and excess. And it's this belief that separates us perhaps so distinctly from our libertarian colleagues. Libertarianism is an ideology that seeks to maximize freedom and government insofar as it protects that freedom. In their minds, the sum and substance of all political philosophy is, let me do what I want and I'll let you do what you want. It's deceptively simple and it's alluringly self-indulgent. But the art of politics is not that simple. French reformer Madame Roland was eventually beheaded by French revolutionaries in the 18th century and went to the guillotine with the famous words, O oh, liberty, what crimes have been committed in your name? Her cry rings true today. In the name of liberty, laws protecting the traditional family were torn down, leading to intergenerational poverty. In the name of liberty, abortion access was universalized, leading to the death of 60 million innocent children. And in the name of liberty... Drugs were spread from one corner of this country to the next, destroying individuals and communities. This is the problem with the libertarian project. Not that they desire social destruction, but that their quest for liberty knows no moderation. Simone Weil said that order was the first need of the soul and therefore the first need of society. Hers is the wisdom of the ages. In the end, conservatism better protects liberty because it creates the kind of society where liberty can thrive. It was ordered liberty that was the bedrock principle of the founding generation, the principle that has secured the last 250 years of American prosperity. And it's a principle that should be neither forgotten nor forsaken. Thank you. At this time, I'd like to invite the Libertarian team to give their opening remarks. We would like to thank the Heritage Foundation for hosting this debate. A firm belief in the necessity of individual rights and limited government animates both the conservative and the libertarian. 
Accordingly, in times of peril, a friendly cooperation has joined the two in common defense of freedom. Yet the libertarian fears that he fights not beside an ally, but a friend of convenience. The libertarian must cast a suspicious eye over the conservative's concern for freedom when it is so often forgotten in practice. Individual liberty is not an heirloom of merely sentimental value to be pawned for other ends. It is the guiding principle, fundamental to America's material and moral progress, which no libertarian will abandon. A simple observation provokes the libertarian's distrust. Conservatives forget the primary importance of liberty and their enthusiasm for the way of life that has arisen under its blessings. In a democracy, the beliefs of the majority enjoy a prominence that crystallizes them into custom. So, misled by traditionalism, conservatives have been persuaded to elevate these values in competition with liberty. Perhaps aware that the subordination of individual rights to other principles is tyranny, conservatives endorse the naive fiction that secondary values like the moral rejection of drugs can receive political priority without danger to freedom. Yet, if at the expense of our rights we bend too far toward a lesser principle, we threaten all of our values. For we compromise the support that guarantees them. Thus, the conservative who makes liberty but one goal among many introduces the tyranny he so zealously disavowed. He suppresses civil liberties at home and imposes his will abroad. Libertarians, like conservatives, appreciate the virtues from which, as a foundation, Americans have raised a great nation. The courage of our soldiers, the genius of our scholars, the quiet strength of our families. But we understand that these virtues cannot survive under the specter of despotism. Born of this understanding, the libertarian philosophy begins with the priority of individual rights. Libertarianism holds that each may, respecting their equal rights of others, determine the standard of her own happiness free of coercion. And the libertarian society, therefore, latches the door against tyranny. Conservatives who believe sincerely that imposing certain values by force is the means of preserving liberty rather than its negation should attend to the consequences of their policies. Instead of peaceful foreign relations grounded in free exchange, free movement, and national defense, conservatives offer the gladiatorial spectacle of arms advertised in the language of fear and billed in the sacrifice of our dollars, our privacy, and our lives. Their wars for the expansion of liberty are the practice of Jacobins, not Jeffersonians. They have learned only a dubious lesson from their previous discredited restrictions on women and minorities that they must now have perfected the scope for compulsion. They continue to endorse state interference with individual sex, identity, and end-of-life decisions. Tonight, we present an alternative to the inconsistencies of the conservative attitude. That alternative is the free society the libertarian society. In it, recognition of the equal rights of each citizen forms a rampart against tyranny. The individual, undisturbed by the grasping hand of government, pursues his aspirations and forms his convictions in personal safety and in peaceful tolerance of his neighbors' like endeavors. Innovation, tested in the open competition of ideas, driven forward for the reward of property rights, distributes its fruits through the medium of voluntary exchange, harmonizing the success of the citizen and his community. We believe that this society, in which each individual, together with his fellow citizens, is free to make of his life the most he can should appeal to conservatives as well. 
Therefore, conservatives, rally again to the cause of liberty. Together, we can restore the free society. Thank you. The conservative team will now give a two-minute rebuttal. So our libertarian friends just accused us of being the ones who've forsaken the cause of liberty. Uh, but I think we would contend that it's actually conservatism that allows us to get the best of liberty while avoiding its pitfalls. Rather than engaging with a conservative conception of ordered liberty, I'm afraid our libertarians resorted to caricature more than argument, accusing us of both despotism and imperialism within the same two-sentence stretch. The problem with libertarianism is that their quest for individualism is, is respectable, and his alternative society to conservatism was composed largely of individual choice and innovation to spur economic growth, which conservatives agree with. But what libertarians don't acknowledge is that what they call personal choices often metastasize into political catastrophes. I mean, take, for example, the abuse of prescription drugs, opioids, a legal drug, I'm going to point out. That's not just destroyed individuals. It's destroyed entire regions of this country, like rural Appalachia. But, of course, the second the conservative says that we can do something about this, they say, well, that big that's big government, and they're going to turn it against you. That's going to turn into tyranny someday. And then there's certainly a risk of power being abused. We conservatives were the first ones to say that when we wrote the Constitution. But liberty, <laughs> liberty can be just as dangerous. It was James Madison who said that freedom is threatened equally by abuses of power and abuses of liberty. And remember that we're not just talking about this generation. The licenses of this generation can be the fetters of the next which is why it's the conservative who doesn't dislike liberty, but we want to order it and direct it so that today's people and our descendants can enjoy the liberty that leads to prosperity rather than slavery. And now we'll hear a two-minute rebuttal from the libertarians. So I think our conservative friends do us a disservice by categorizing us as anarchists. Libertarians are not anarchists. We love order. We love morality, responsibility. We also believe in the rule of law, albeit we think that the country should have much, much fewer laws. But it's not synonymous with anarchy. Libertarianism is the belief that people should live their lives however they want so long as they don't harm another human being or, yeah, or infringe upon the rights of another human being. You know, you really have to ask yourself, have conservatives helped posterity for all that they've talked about? Think about the long-term effects of conservative policies in this country. Do we protect posterity by expanding the size of government, um, the, ex the size of the military and the NSA, preying on our citizens and taking more and more of their privacy rights? We're giving away our rights to the government that future generations won't be able to enjoy. And I'm so thrilled that the conservatives brought up the war on drugs and how harm and um, the harms of the opioid crisis, because I can't think of a more um, of a bigger failure of a government policy that they still uh, that they still apparently defend. Because all the harms of opioid use are as are because the government. Um, made opioids illegal and created a black market. That's why you see 50% of opioid deaths are because of fentanyl contaminations, because the government moves it into the black market, and that is bad for posterity. That is bad for community. 
it is also bad to prohibit vice or for the government to attempt to prohibit vices is also not good for posterity. It's taking away more of our rights and it's incredibly ineffective. It just creates more violence by um, creating disorder. Libertarianism actually protects liberty because we understand that this is a cherished gift given to us by the founding fathers and conservatives have abandoned the founding principles by expanding the size of government to ridiculous means that have actually taken away our rights and made us more unsafe. Thank you. Okay, next up is going to be our topical debate. We're going to start with, start with the libertarians for this one. You'll have three minutes um, to answer, to respond to the prompt I give, and then you'll have three minutes, one minute, and one minute. The first topic that I'd like to hear from the libertarians on is this. Civil society must be protected with prohibitions on individuals' vices. Liberty should be the primary principle when it comes to politics, but we do believe that there is more to life than liberty. Civil society rests on a sense of morality and responsibility. However, we are skeptical of government dictating to us what it believes to be correct morals and values. Libertarians and conservatives agree that government gets many issues wrong. Alcohol prohibition, racial segregation, and laws banning interracial marriage should have taught us the dangers of government overreach. Yet conservatives still want government intervention when it comes to drug use, pornography, and prostitution. Libertarians understand that personal responsibility and morality cannot be imposed by the government, and trying to impose such things have costs. Conservatives fail to realize that curbing these activities doesn't protect civil society at all, but only harms it while taking away our rights as well. Our personal beliefs may lead us to scorn certain activities, but the people we disagree with have individual rights as well. This is why using the government to prohibit peaceful activities is an unjust use of authority. This also sets up the precedent of taking away liberties that future generations won't ever enjoy. The only morally reprehensible activities that the government may justly stop are those that infringe upon the rights of others, not when the activities are thought to be socially harmful by some bureaucrat or upstart councilman. You may agree that drug use should be punishable, but the next bureaucrat might decide that sugary beverages and gun ownership are the sort of social ills that the government must curb. The Overton window is always shifting. Without a doubt, the government should serve justice to those who murder, steal, and rape, but not those who engage in private and consensual activities. On that point, we must remember when the government defines vice incorrectly. Take the comedian Lenny Bruce, who said two swear words in a San Francisco comedy club in 1961 and was arrested for obscenity. There was a time when the government instituted racial segregation and when sodomy was a felony. Why would we trust the government to know what is proper moral conduct? Moreover, attempting to prohibit vices is a vain effort. People will engage in these activities anyway, but the attempt to prohibit creates a world that is more violent and oppressive. Violence harms civil society more than burning a flag does. The war on drugs increases violence by transferring drug transportation to the black market and making prostitution illegal denies sex workers' legal rights and recourse. It's more dangerous to have what you consider vicious on the black market than to have it exist in an open legal market. In order to live in a free society, we must be able to tolerate the activities that may not align with our moral values. We must remember that the government gets things wrong. By accepting this, we will achieve a freer and more just society for us and for future generations. Thank you.
Conservatives? <clears throat> In George Washington's farewell address, you can find this statement. Religion and morality are the essential pillars of civil society. Both libertarians and conservatives understand that government needs to prohibit certain conduct, such as murder, in order to protect civil society. The problem is that libertarianism ignores how law shapes culture and how culture shapes beliefs and actions. It seems libertarianism assumes the virtues of character that sustain a free market are spontaneous and can be satisfied by mere self-interest. We recognize that the free market teaches certain values, among which are self-reliance, thriftiness, and politeness. However, the economy on its own cannot fulfill the goals of the political community. Let me be clear. Conservatism does not say that all vices should be prohibited. Rather, the question conservatism urges us to ask is, at what point do individual vices reverberate throughout the political community? Uh, I apologize. Um, is this my three-minute statement or the, the one-minute response? Three-minute. Three minutes. That's, that's what I thought. <laughs> I was a little confused by the time. My apologies. <laughs> so I asked the question at the, it's just a second ago. So what, we, we want to know, at what point do individual vices reverberate throughout the political community? That's the question before us. So for instance, uh, if I decide that living is too great a burden and I take my own life, I think we could all agree that is a tremendous tragedy. However, that does not mean the government should step in and try to ban or regulate everything that could be used to commit suicide. But if the medical community gets involved and the art of healing is transformed into the art of killing, there is a clear imperative for the government to step in and prevent the cheapening of human life on a societal scale. If some, or another example, if someone decides to go on a drug-fueled vision quest out in the Mojave Desert, there is a legitimate argument to be made that the government need not get involved. But when you have hundreds of thousands of people, particularly young people, destroying their lives, their families, and their communities through addiction to meth or heroin, how can it be anything but callous? to continue insisting that no level of government has any responsibility to its citizens to intervene. The philosopher Robert Nisbet once said, release man from the context of community and you get not freedom or rights, but intolerable aloneness and subjection to demonic fears and passions. Society, Burke wrote in a celebrated line, is a partnership of the dead, the living, and the unborn. Libertarianism pretends that order erupts spontaneously, but conservatism understands that the kind of civilization in which we live was built painfully through much trial and error over the centuries. It is because of this long memory that conservatism better protects liberty than libertarianism. Conservatism is the only philosophy that can create a self-governing society, a society in which ordered liberty can thrive across generations. That is why our great American heritage is a conservative heritage. Thank you. Now we'll hear a one-minute rebuttal from the libertarians. Okay. So, liberty preserves our special society and preserves those institutions that the government isn't involved in, such as the family... Um, marriage, 
religion, etc. When government interferes in these realms, they are the consequences are often disastrous. Take the laws, for example, that banned interracial marriage. This was an example of the government trying to curb a vice by saying that two people of different races couldn't marry. Why would we, if we couldn't trust the government then, why would we trust the government now? They, it, this is an example of many things that infringes upon the rights of others. And also, conservatives create more violence by attempting to prohibit things such as drugs. The way that, the reason that so many people are having their lives ruined by heroin and meth is because these products are more unsafe on the black market. This is because when you can't have this in a legal market, um, they are more likely to be contaminated, and this is why there are more uh, overdoses. Oh, out of time. Thank you. <laughs> and now one, one minute rebuttal from the conservatives. A main point of my libertarian colleagues' arguments was that the government should only prevent individuals from not harming one another. And I'm glad they brought that up. Because if no level of government can coerce any positive duties upon individuals, then my question is, do parents have the legal obligation to feed their children? Because I know the founder of Cato, Murray Rothbard, certainly didn't think so. Uh, He even argued that in a libertarian society, if you can even call it that, parents own their children and therefore should be able to buy and sell them on the open market. These positions illustrate just how little true libertarianism actually cares about the moral character necessary for a free society. And they claim that conservatives are really big government leftists in disguise. But conservatism does share libertarian skepticism of government intervention in the economy, especially on the federal level. The founders shared the same view, but also recognized a proper role for government, especially state and local, in the regulation of vices, deemed harmful to the public morality. And I don't think anyone here would call the founders sadists. Thank you. For the next topic, we're going to switch things up a little bit. We're going to start over here on my left. And and the, the prompt that you'll be responding to is, restraint should be the guiding principle of U.S. foreign policy. Thank you. Conservatives agree that restraint should be a guiding principle of foreign policy because conservatives are defensive realists. Conservatism recognizes and shares libertarianism's concern about the tendency of a robust national defense to strengthen the national government. But we also recognize that we must have a balance between maximizing freedom at home and protecting citizens from threats beyond our borders. Because in an age of globalized threats, we require U.S. commitments abroad. A conservative foreign policy is one that emphasizes prudence over dogma. Because national security is not a single-player game. While history can inform contemporary solutions, it can never provide an exact roadmap. That's where prudent statesmanship is required. We have to take other nations' actions into account, which means there's no predictable formula for how to conduct foreign policy. Our libertarian colleagues would certainly agree with Friedrich Hayek, of all people, uh, that information is decentralized. Well, in no realm of public policy is that more true than in foreign policy. 
The question before us tonight, then, is what does restraint look like in the real world? Libertarianism is fond of saying that the United States needs to reduce its role in the world, but rarely, if ever, can it tell you by how much. The Constitution establishes guiding principles. For example, it includes measures designed to prevent national security from becoming an instrument of tyranny. But it also allows flexibility in how we respond to threats the founders could never have conceived of. The enduring challenge for conservatives is how to maintain the flexibility required to make national security effective without hijacking it for partisan political ends. And we believe that the way to meet that challenge is through prudence, not through rigid axioms that cannot realistically be expected to guide foreign policy in a globalized and constantly changing world. NATO is a great example of such a prudent policy. It protected Europe, and by extension, the United States, during the Cold War. Today, it serves as a bulwark against a resurgent Russia. I'd say that's well worth our investment. Cato Vice President David Bowes uh, likes to say that libertarian principles can be understood by kindergartners. Well, I'm sorry to break it to him, uh, but foreign policy in the real world is a lot more complicated than kindergarten. And only a conservative foreign policy is up to the task of keeping America safe. Thank you. Three minutes to the Libertarians. Thomas Jefferson's pledge in his first inaugural address was to create peace, commerce, and honest friendship with all nations, entangling alliances with none. As libertarians, we share Thomas Jefferson's vision and believe that a restrained foreign policy is the best way to secure our liberties and strengthen our country. The United States is not more powerful when we involve ourselves in unnecessary conflicts. A restrained foreign policy will give us a military that can protect us when legitimate threats emerge. We save lives, money, and preserve our own freedom when we do so. We are not naive pacifists. Intervention is justifiable when there is a compelling U.S. national security interest at stake. We know how to pay for it. We have a precise mission and public support, and we're sure that we've exhausted all other means. Under these criteria, the invasion of Afghanistan, World War II, and the war with the Barbary states are all justifiable. The Iraq and Vietnam wars are not. Conservatives mistakenly assume restraint and military strength are mutually exclusive. The opposite is true. When our military is overextended and fighting half a dozen foolhardy wars in the Middle East and Africa at once without clear missions, we are weaker. If Russia and China do pose a threat to us, do we want our military's readiness to be compromised by being spread thin and having resources depleted? Or do we want to have a strong, focused military ready to defend ourselves? In addition, we must consider the costs of the current U.S. foreign policy. The defense budget costs $700 million a year. We spend more on our military than the next seven countries combined, and this contributes to an astronomical national debt that makes us weaker, not stronger. There are non-fiscal costs as well. We've lost countless soldiers to avoidable wars. We owe it to our troops to not only give them missions that are defined and winnable, and they, but they also deserve the right to know that the missions they serve in are necessary as well. We should never forget that people at home feel the effects of war. The National Security Agency, a product of the Cold War, has expanded exponentially throughout the 20th century as U.S. military entanglements have increased. As a result, millions of Americans have lost their privacy rights under Big Brother's eye. The TSA, the Patriot Act, and the U.S. Freedom Act won't go back into Pandora's box when the war ends. 
Our children and grandchildren will never know the liberties that we gave away. We are not a beacon of democracy when we impose our beliefs and values that can only emerge organically. The best way to show the strength of our country is only by wielding power when necessary. To paraphrase John Quincy Adams, the United States ought not go abroad into in search of monsters to destroy. We should be a well-wisher to the freedom and independence of all and champion and vindicator only of our own. We shall be a beacon of liberty by setting this example and having a restraint in foreign policy. Thank you. And now a rebuttal from the conservatives. Well, our libertarian colleagues uh, seem to want two things. They both want a smaller budget for our military, but also greater readiness to meet threats such as China and Russia. The reality that the, the claim that we don't need a Cold War sized military, the question is I mean, look at the multiplicity of threats we face today. Uh, the idea that a weak military, emaciated by Obama style sequestration, can adequately defend Americans is both callous and unrealistic. And it causes me to wonder uh, whether libertarians, when pushed to the edge, would rather save money than lives. Conservatism can provide a real foreign policy solution because it allows for flexible responses to complex global threats while still remaining rooted in the key guiding principle of peace through strength. Thank you. And now we'll hear a one-minute rebuttal from the Libertarians. Greater military readiness will be achieved by making the military smaller than it is. We are more powerful, I repeat, we are more powerful when we are, more, when we are ready to respond to conflicts that immediately um, threaten us as opposed to fighting a dozen wars that, uh, that have no relevance to us whatsoever. This policy would save lives. The assertion that we want to save money instead of lives is absurd because we're the ones advocating for restraint. We're the ones advocating that we should not be sending more men in, and women into battle if they truly do not need to be there. We will be a safer country if we have a truly restrained foreign policy. We do not need the size of the military in the United States to be the size it's been and they say that it's not realistic, but the fact of the matter is that we are more powerful than all of the other militaries, and we would still do well to defend ourselves and our liberties by practicing more restraint. Thank you. Okay. A prompt for the libertarians. Three minutes, please. Physician-assisted death should be legal. A limited legal framework for physician-assisted death allows terminally ill individuals to end their lives with dignity and according to their own wishes. To force these individuals to endure unnecessary suffering is an exceptional power for the government to assume over the lives of its citizens, and as such it requires an exceptional justification, one which demonstrates that overwhelming harm to society would follow without the violation of individual rights. Our country which already guarantees patients' rights to refuse life-sustaining treatment and request sedation to unconsciousness without nutrition, will struggle to justify, according to this standard, the prohibition of similar actions by which patients may end their lives. In contrast to the Dutch model, a reasonable law restricts physician-assisted death to terminally ill adults of sound mind 
whose consent is verified by multiple requests, and whose medication is self-administered. State laws exist in our country that, despite imperfections, substantially reflect these principles, and they have retained them unchanged for as many as 20 years. Under these laws, rather than a culture of abuse, we have seen a small number of participants. In Oregon, less than four-tenths of a percent of those dying annually. The America of permissive European-style euthanasia remains a mirage. A prohibitory alternative to a humane end-of-life regime with safeguards against misuse is, as current experience proves, not a regime of life, but a regime of desperation. Dangerous objects are in every home in America, and those who cannot end their lives in deliberate comfort will rashly avail themselves of these crude means of self-destruction to the distress of their families. Far better to give them a structured method that confirms their prognosis, enjoins their reflection, and identifies coercive pressures. Patients, under a system whose safeguards require them to confront the gravity of their choice, can be certain that they have made a thoughtful decision. Indeed, a significant proportion of those prescribed lethal doses under state laws choose not to end their lives. Far better as well to protect doctors who today must choose between their duty to alleviate the suffering of their patients and their duty to the law. The legalization of physician-assisted death does not compel doctors to prescribe lethal doses, nor should it permit them to recommend self-administration. It merely allows doctors the option to advise patients who ask of all possible remedies to their distress, including the most humane, least traumatic way of ending their lives. The libertarian position embraces the dignity of human life by insisting that in our compassion for our neighbors, we take seriously their sufferings and desires. Anything less is the paternalistic reduction of the human being to an object to be managed rather than a person deserving of empathy. Libertarians offer understanding to their fellow citizens faced with the tragic choice between agony and death, whichever path they choose. Thank you. Three minutes on the same prompt to the conservatives. Thanks. For centuries, one of the foundational principles of medicine was do no harm. But libertarians are content to see this line erased from the Hippocratic Oath in favor of their favorite substitute, a market system, a free exchange of goods and services. Except here the good is death and the service is euthanasia. No such market should exist. A society that sanctions such conduct cannot hope to long maintain its respect for human dignity. This is why we conservatives believe in the inherent value of life from conception to natural death and oppose physician-assisted suicide. There's two primary reasons why rejecting our traditional respect for life is so dangerous. And the first is that physician-assisted suicide inevitably devolves into death by coercion. The arguments presented for physician-assisted suicide inevitably break down in practice. Now, the libertarian position just advanced is an interesting one because they said it's about consent. People should be able to choose this if they're in agony. But then why, as they suggest, do we need to limit it to end-of-life cases or the terminally ill? If it's just about consent, why can't anybody choose to die? In fact, that's just what happened in the Netherlands last year when a woman who was 40 years old elected for suicide... She had tinnitus, which is a tingling in the ear that is 100% treatable, and she had two children who she left orphaned. Eventually, the argument from consent starts to fade, and people start to care more about quality of life 
than just consent. But when, of course, it's all about quality of life, then who gets to make that call? And even when you say the individual does, that also isn't how it works in practice. Again, in the Netherlands, some studies estimate that up to 50% of physician-assisted suicides happened without explicit consent, including a Dutch woman who was literally pinned to an operating table last year as she screamed, I don't want to die, and was lethally injected by her family. When life stops becoming meaningful for life's sake, consolidations like the co- considerations like the cost of living and the quality of life become elevated. And this is why, secondly, it erodes the dignity of the human person. The reason that that hasn't happened in the United States yet, like it has in Europe, in the few states that have legalized it, is because of us, the conservatives, who have advocated for a right to life from birth to death and haven't accepted this transformation of the community that is supposed to heal into dispensers of death. Inevitably, when society sanctions physician-assisted suicide and invites a cost-benefit analysis into the worth and the dignity of a human person, especially when they're going through suffering, and it's quick, it's not a slippery slope before society starts to see the elderly and even children as a burden. Patients put their lives into the hands of doctors. Society shouldn't empower those same doctors to end them. A one-minute rebuttal, please. We are not the Netherlands, and we are not sliding toward the Dutch. The laws in Oregon for physician-assisted death were passed in 1997. This year, 2018, Hawaii passed a law allowing physician-assisted death. Guess what? It looks a lot like Oregon. And if the conservatives want to pat themselves on the back for ensuring that Hawaii passed a similar law, that's just fine with me. They can. The point is that Americans have different values than Europeans, and they don't seem to be changing. We're not going to be euthanizing anybody. We don't support euthanizing anybody, and I don't think you do either. Moreover, we are not suggesting that this is some sort of cost-benefit analysis that the family should do for other individuals. That is why we have safeguards, and that is why we advocate safeguards. Even the faulty safeguards we have now are not doing a terribly poor job at protecting individuals. Those who are surveyed that participate in physician-assisted death regimes far and away respond most often that they have made their decision because they have lost the ability to enjoy their lives. It is a far greater percentage than those who say they feel like a burden to their family or feel financial pressure. Thank you. One-minute response. The libertarian reformers in the Netherlands didn't pitch the idea of physician-assisted suicide with, we're going to kill your children and elderly against their consent. It started with an argument from consent. We want people who are suffering to be able to choose to die the way they want to. The problem is that almost inevitably slides. It almost inevitably turns into a slippery slope. Because there is a difference between refusing treatment, which is currently allowed in the United States, and active killing or allowing the medical community to participate in a person choosing to kill themselves, because the latter gives medical practitioners a new ability and something new that they can recommend. For example, in Belgium, we learned just last week that children aged 9 and 11 were given lethal injections. 9 and 11. Belgium didn't adopt physician-assisted suicide laws because they thought that was going to happen. 
but it was an inevitable consequence of laws that stopped protecting the right to life, which is why conservatives insist that we don't make the devil's bargain now. The fourth and final prompt that we'll debate tonight, and this one will go, let's see, who's up next? To my, to the left here, to my left, to your right, the conservatives. Fitting. (laughs) You're right. Immigration reform should start with the enforcement and implementation of current laws. Speaking at the United Nations, the president said, Our government's first duty is to its people, to our citizens, to serve their needs, to ensure their safety, to preserve their rights, and to defend their values. Conservatism agrees with this understanding of government and consequently recognizes two goals in regards to U.S. immigration policy that has historically governed our nation. First, is maintaining and enhancing the unique culture of the U.S. And the second is preserving the public safety of American citizens. To accomplish these goals, therefore, conservatism demands we enforce our current immigration laws in order to stem illegal immigration. Make no mistake, conservatism is pro-immigration. We recognize the work ethic of many immigrants, both past and present. But illegal immigration damages our prosperity by threatening the safety of our citizens and undermining American society by replacing the melting pot with the salad bowl. In 2008, Tony Bologna and his two teenage sons were brutally murdered by Edwin Ramos, an MS-13 gang member with two prior violent felony convictions. Even though he was an illegal immigrant, he had never been deported. And this isn't the only such story. A recent Texas Department of Public Safety report shows that out of 245,000 criminal aliens incarcerated between 2011 and 2018, 66% were in the country illegally. They were convicted of 600 murders, 30,000 assaults, 3,300 sexual assaults, 38,000 drug crimes, and 274 kidnappings. This is why the constitutional duty to enforce our current immigration laws is essential to protecting American lives and American values. We continue to be the most generous country in the world when it comes to immigration, allowing in more than 1 million illegal immigrants per year out of a nation of 330 million. But nobody has the right to be an American. It's up to us, the sovereign people, to decide who we want to accept. And that is why the Constitution explicitly grants the federal government the power over naturalization. We cannot ignore the damage that illegal immigration has done to American culture. A hundred years ago, we assimilated large numbers of immigrants through an education system dedicated to Americanization. But what happens now that we live in a time where not only is assimilation not practiced, but actively discouraged by a culture being torn apart by identity politics? Conservatism understands that addressing the problem of assimilation is critical. Otherwise, we risk facing the same threat or same fate as Europe. It's just like President Reagan said, a nation that cannot control its borders is not a nation. Thank you.
three minutes. The typical immigrant sets out for our country because he believes in the American experiment and his place in it. He is, on average, more educated than his former countrymen, yet receives lower wages than his future countrymen. But he often joins a community of other immigrants, facilitating financial and cultural assimilation. He is also more likely to start a business than natives, more likely to innovate than natives, and within a decade or so, he will earn the wage of natives. Ambition, community, and entrepreneurship propel him to success. Nevertheless, our current laws are anti-immigrant, stifling free movement. Waiting lists today are millions long, and visa eligibility rules would exclude most Americans' ancestors. Unreasonably severe restrictions punish law-abiding applicants, exacerbate evasion, and interject state control into the labor market. Some conservatives support our exclusionary laws for fear that immigrants endanger our culture. We share concern for responsible citizenship, but immigrants are not the threat conservatives imagine. By standard measures, immigrants assimilate well. A large share learn English, and more than 90% of their children do. Intermarriage rates with natives are high, too. Direct measures are equally encouraging. Surveyed immigrants share similar views on free speech, wealth redistribution, health policy, and crime spending with non-immigrants. This is no surprise. American culture has reached many potential immigrants, and the self-reliance, entrepreneurship, and innovation of those who do immigrate demonstrate their pre-assimilation into this culture. Creativity is good for growth, and immigrants are responsible for a quarter of new businesses and patents. In an era of low fertility rates, immigration also provides workers for domestic businesses, increasing production and demand. From immigration, we have more customers and more goods. This is because immigrants do not simply replace natives. Even skeptical researchers find negligible or even positive effects of immigration on wages. Immigrants add to the economy because their skills complement native ones. With freer movement, immigrants can choose destinations that need their abilities, making both natives and immigrants more productive. This free market intuition, verified by decades of empirical analysis, is now economic consensus. Despite favorable economic evidence, some conservatives oppose liberalized immigration on security grounds. Libertarians, too, value security and accept background checks. However, data show that immigrants, legal and illegal, commit less violent crime than natives. And from 1975 to 2015, the chance of dying in a foreign-born terrorist attack was less than 300 thousandths of a percent. There is no reason to maintain exclusionary laws to maintain safety. The criticisms of immigration are far too weak to support our restrictive, centrally planned system of controls. No good can come from perpetuating bad laws that only degrades our legal institutions. Liberalized immigration is a step toward freedom, innovation, and prosperity. Thank you. One minute rebuttal, please. Uh, to be honest with you, I really do think that Taylor actually made a lot of good points in terms of what the what immigration's been able to do for this country. Legal immigration. And I started by saying that we are pro-immigration, but I have to question whether he answered the que- uh, whether he answered um, the the prompt, which is that illegal reform or immigration reform should start with the enforcement and implementation of current laws. And that was my focus. Um, because illegal immigrants clearly do not respect American values in breaking the law to come here. And the question isn't whether or not illegals commit crimes at a higher, a higher or lower rates than normal Americans, 
but rather that none of these crimes would have occurred at all if our immigration laws were not properly or were properly enforced. What conservatism advocates is the rule of law. What conservatism advocates is enforcing our current laws uh, at, to encourage and reward legal immigrants, not to put them on the same level as those who skirt the system in order to come here illegally. And we promote more than anything, we promote our economic development, but also uh, promoting and continuing the greatness of American culture through proper assimilation. Thank you. And a final one-minute rebuttal. Indeed, we believe we have answered the prompt. There is no way to say that our current laws are pro-immigrant, and conservatives who support them cannot themselves be pro-immigrant. Moreover, to argue for them on the basis of the rule of law is to argue that the enforcement of bad laws increases respect for law. That is ridiculous. Moreover, the conservatives suggest that we have a constitutional duty to enforce these laws. I would ask them to find in the Constitution the words... Immigration and Customs Enforcement. <laughs> I can tell them they will not find it. It is true that we have rules allowed by the Constitution for naturalization, and it is true that we should limit citizenship to those who show that they can join productively in our national life, who have joined our culture. But I would ask them if they believe that illegal immigrants who risk every day being grabbed and thrown from the life that they have, cho that they have chosen in this country and that they have and to be taken from there and taken back to their country which they have, which they have voluntarily left do not value America. Thank you both. For the fourth section of the debate, we're going to dial up the persuasion a little bit more. So we're going to start with the conservatives this time. And I'm going to ask uh, somebody from the conservative team to come up to the podium and to answer the following question. Why should, why should libertarians be conservative? Look, my pitch is pretty simple. <laughs> if you really love liberty, be a conservative. <laughs> Look, I understand the libertarian impulse Human freedom is a beautiful thing, and big government is usually a threat to it. Uh, but I can't speak for every individual who calls themselves a conservative, but conservatism as a political philosophy certainly desires freedom. But conservatives also understand something additional and essential. Unfettered autonomy, when abused, can be just as harmful as authoritarianism. Not just to the common good, but to the liberty that we prized in the first place. This is why we believe as conservatives that government has a limited but important role in ordering liberty. Just as we thwart abuses of power through the checks and balances of the Constitution, we thwart abuses of liberty through the rule of law. Now, I think there are two implications of this reality that I'll ask my libertarian friends to consider. The first is that this is why social issues, so-called, are political issues. Many libertarians recoil from conservatism because they accuse us of quote-unquote legislating morality, forgetting that all law legislates morality from prohibitions on murder to protections of rights. Those are laws based on moral claims and understandings. The question has never been, will the law legislate morality, but rather, what morality will the law legislate? 
In answering this question, conservatives have understood the impact that individual choices have on the political community. The only moral limits that libertarians would impose on such liberty is the non-aggression principle. The problem is, is that many choices may not directly threaten property, but still affect others' freedom in more subtle, but no less pernicious ways. Those who are pro-choice deny freedom to the unborn. Those who are addicted to drugs burden the freedom of their families. And those who have crossed the border to commit crimes have sometimes stolen the freedom of their victims forever. This is why Tocqueville once called freedom an art. What he meant is that politics is a difficult and creative balance between limiting some choices so that freedom on the whole can prosper. Secondly, politics is more than just economics. Many of my libertarian friends are very excellent economists, including, as I understand, Taylor over here. Uh, But economics can only do so much. Libertarians as economists fall prey to the hammer problem, which is when all you have is a hammer, everything kind of looks like a nail. They, wielding the hammer of free markets in the china shop of civil society, threaten threaten the viability of the entire enterprise. Economics can tell you how a market will act, but it can't tell you if there should be a market in the first place. Should there be a market for prostitution, for elective death, for child pornography? Those are moral and political questions upon which the health of our republic depends. Hayek once said that tradition and convention make liberty possible. And he didn't mean just any old tradition like no shave November or not changing your pants during the playoffs. He meant morality and civility. Put simply, even the idea of libertarianism is a luxury made possible by generations of conservatism. Those who hope to maximize freedom for ourselves and our descendants should join the conservative team. The conservative emphasis on ordered liberty and civil society is not meant to detract from the value of liberty. It is precisely because we value liberty that we insist on them. Thank you. And now I'd like to invite up the libertarians to answer the reverse prompt, which is why should conservatives be libertarians? In 1975, conservative hero Ronald Reagan said, I believe the very heart and soul of conservatism is libertarianism. Many American conservatives were drawn to conservatism because of its rhetoric about freedom and individualism. Reagan became one of the most beloved presidents for his promises to defeat communism and make the government small, not because of his support for gun control. Few were attracted to William F. Buckley for his arguments supporting segregation, but because he was a fierce critic of leftist authoritarianism. Both sides of this debate have claimed that they represent small government, free markets, and individualism, but at the end of the day, libertarianism is the only consistent political philosophy being represented on the stage. Take Reagan's quote again, I believe the very heart and soul of conservatism is libertarianism. Think about how much conservatism has changed since his era. Would there still be a place for someone with Reagan's free trade principles in the conservative movement, which is now dominated by President Trump and his trade wars? 
What about the time when George H.W. Bush and Ronald Reagan debated over which one of them supported Mexican immigration more while vying for the Republican nomination in 1980? In 2018, we have the Heritage Foundation's foremost philosophical conservative, David Azrad, say that of all his living, all all living politicians, his favorite is Donald Trump for being a courageous hero for free speech principles. President Trump, a man who once advocated for throwing flag burners in jail and revoking their citizenship, and who calls the press the enemy of the people. Antonin Scalia would rightly identify this as pure applesauce. Libertarianism, on the other hand, is guided by the simple principle that individuals ought have the liberty to live their lives however they want as long as they do not infringe upon the rights of others. Conservatism is riddled with inconsistencies. Conservatives will rush to the defense of property rights when it comes to the religious baker, but many won't when it comes to social media platforms. Conservatives take these interventionist approaches with the goal of conserving liberty and protecting posterity, but what has that looked like? The implementation of the Patriot Act, which has violated privacy rights and will continue to violate those of our children and their children. It looks like countless unnecessary wars that are launched in the name of freedom and protecting strategic interests, but end up draining our treasury and making new enemies that our children will have to fight. It looks like spending more than $1 trillion on the war on drugs, which compounds the inherent risks of drug use and contributes to the national debt that no generation may be able to pay off. Conservatives like to paint libertarianism as a radical philosophy that seeks to uproot all tradition, attempting to lump all libertarians with Murray Rothbard and accusing us of thinking child pornography is fine, both of which of which things are not true, not realizing that their intellectual forefathers all had much more respect for libertarianism than they do, and that when one looks at the events of the 20th century critically, libertarians have been right all along. The war on drugs has been a failure. Countless unnecessary and harmful military interventions have failed. Moral panics about homosexuality and rock music were unfounded, and capitalism and individual rights have succeeded. To the conservatives in the audience who value liberty most, ask yourself seriously if you are more inclined to libertarianism than you may have thought previously. There may be a difference between what you thought conservatism represented and what it actually represents. Thomas Jefferson said, a wise government shall restrain men from injuring one another and leave them otherwise free to regulate their own pursuits of industry and improvement. If you are truly and consistently devoted to the principles of small government and individualism, know that you are free to join a movement that fights to secure your rights, your neighbor's rights, and your children's rights from a tyrannical government, whether it leans right or left. Thank you. Thank you to both teams for that. That was great. This is the part of the night when we open up the floor to questions. So I understand that there are there's at least one microphone that's going to be coming around. So if I call on you, please wait for the microphone. I also have a couple of questions that have come in via email. Uh, the important thing here is to remember that for a sentence to be a question, it has to have a question mark at the end of it. <laughs> and I know that because I'm an editor. <laughs> If you say more than about one and a half sentences without getting to the question mark, you're not following the rules. Do we have any questions? We have one here. Uh, the war on terror started 17 years ago. How would you grade it? Is this for anyone? Both sides? Either side. 
Uh, I'll start with conservatives. The war on terror and how would you grade uh, the past 17 years? I mean, do you want like a letter grade? Do you want like a thumbs up or a thumbs down? I like it. All right, go for it. <laughs> to be honest with you, for the United States, remarkably well. Um, since 9-11, there have been no comparable size of terror attacks. We look at Europe, where they have a considerably uh, less stringent foreign policy. They have one, they value their national security a lot less. They have open borders, and um, the number of terror attacks seem to be endless in terms of what we hear about. Uh, conservatism, on the other hand, a conservative foreign policy, we don't, we're not going to argue over every little point of history or argue that every single decision made by any president, if he has an R next to his name, is absolutely right and should be taken in line with the entire tradition of conservatism. But what we will argue is that, um, that, our, that a conservative foreign policy, an active, strong role in the world, uh, has resulted in, for instance, under this administration, the complete destruction of ISIS. And that a foreign policy that keeps America strong helps preserve peace. Thank you. Can each of you address the question of unfettered corporate cronyism and whether it amounts to social welfare for the rich and whether it constitutes true, whether it jeopardizes a true free market economy? Let's start with the libertarians. Well, obviously, any sort of government support subsidization or corrupt legislation in favor of business is, yes, welfare for business. It is something that libertarians would not support, and it is something which we've done a lot to combat since the Gilded Age, and we've seen a lot of improvements since then because of our work against it. It's something that we continue to fight against. Yeah, I mean, cronyism is a problem, uh, although I, I would point out probably that uh, from the perspective of like the general public, oftentimes, you know, especially when it comes to large corporations, we have a tendency to both demonize them and to think that they have monopolies a lot quicker than they do, and that through cronyism and other ways, the people have cornered the market when they actually haven't. I think the best example of that is Apple and the iPhone. I mean, there was a time at which people were genuinely saying there's no legitimate competitor to the iPhone. Uh, Apple has monopolized the market, and there were a lot of worries about that until Samsung made arguably a better phone, and then now look what we have shared. They have about equal market share. So like the market can work a lot of these problems out by itself, and conservatives believe that just as much as libertarians do. Let's go right here. Uh, the, to the libertarians, uh, the conservatives mentioned Murray Rothbard in his quote that the law may not properly compel a parent to feed a child or keep it alive. Do you hold that Cato's founder was speaking on behalf of the libertarian ethic? Thank you. Allow us to publicly disavow Murray Rothbard. Yeah, Thank you. Yeah, Cato was founded by three different people, and they cut ties from Murray, Murray Rothbard very early on. And also, we don't represent the Cato Institute. We represent libertarianism. But no, I'm not a Murray Rothbard supporter. Taylor isn't. I can't think of a single person at the Cato Institute who is, so... No, we think that parents should feed their children. Thank you all very much for being here. Um, for the libertarian side, you all have been critical of American governmental policy, social, foreign, and immigration policies. Can you name another country that better 
um, exemplifies these libertarian ideals, preferably one that doesn't preferably one that doesn't live under the American military umbrella. Well, the American military umbrella is just about everywhere you would like to go in the, in the world. So I'm sorry, but from your list of two countries, I can't pick one. However, <laughs> I would like to suggest to you that we are not arguing against America. We think America is a great country founded by libertarians who wrote their constitution Nevertheless, we think it is an excellent country which thrived on libertarian principles and which has fallen away from them in areas. We would like to improve those because we think America can be better with libertarian policies. Do we have any questions for the conservatives? We've had two for the libertarians in a row. All right, um, let's come up. Uh, the libertarians uh, sometimes are very critical of the Federal Reserve, thinking that it essentially plans the economy uh, by artificially lowering interest rates that raise the values of all the assets of people who have their assets, making the rich richer uh, and, and distorting the free market. Um, so what's the conservatives' views about the Federal Reserve and its uh, central planned economy that, we, that they basically control? Of course. I'm really glad you asked that, actually. Um, no, we agree. The Federal Reserve has drastically expanded its powers since its creation in 1913. Uh, and like other administrative agencies which conservatism opposes, it eliminates accountability and hinders the free market. So uh, we really believe in doing three things when it comes to reforming the Federal Reserve. Uh, first, we want to decrease the regulatory and supervisory powers of the Fed uh, because it does burden the small community and regional banks and it eliminates competition for larger banks. Uh, second, we want to ensure that it does not serve as a lender of last resort uh, which only creates moral hazard and shifts the incentives uh, towards expansionary, or you might know it better as inflationary policies. Uh, and third and finally, we need to move away from uh, just this discretion the Fed has at the hands of bureaucrats, because no economist, uh, however good, uh, can centrally plan a nation's monetary circulation effectively. So we agree that the Fed um, is, is an agency that has burdened our economy far more than it's helped it. It's grown beyond its original charter, and uh, we think it needs to be significantly reformed and audited. Thank you. Uh, thank you. Uh, I, would I would appreciate if you could, uh, both of you could give uh, perspective on trade issues, especially on uh, American, so uh, current trade wars with China. Thank you. Sorry. Go first. Okay. Yeah. I mean, not only has the Heritage Foundation officially probably been most critical of Trump in this area, uh, but so have we privately. You wouldn't know us. Uh, <laughs> Free trade in the free market system has done more to lift people out of poverty in the last 50 years than any other system ever devised by man. I mean, if you look at the UN's numbers, if you look at any sort of private numbers, the people living in crippling poverty around the world has decreased exponentially since uh, freer markets have happened since uh, since the collapse of the Soviet Union and before then. Uh, so tariffs are taxes on American consumers, basically. So they are harmful to not only our economy, but in the long run everyone's economy, uh, and so we believe in free trade. I don't think we can add too much to that, the idea that there are grave national security concerns being addressed by our present tariffs is laughable. Um, if I were a laughing personality, I would be laughing right now.
Second to the last row, yep. Um, this question is for the conservatives. So given that between 1930 and 2005, one million of the two million people deported from the United States were actually American citizens, how would you see immigration policy enforced where it didn't affect U.S. citizens that severely? Well, I have to apologize, but I do take issue with your numbers. Um, I just don't think, the, the fact of the matter is, is that we believe uh, in, in deporting illegal immigrants. We believe in controlling immigration to this country because we want to reward the legal immigrants who stay, uh, who are part of our process um, and go through all that time. We're not saying the immigration laws we currently have need to be entirely reformed. Uh, we're not. We're saying that the first step, which was the prompt, is to enforce our current laws because the rule of law is critical. I mean, our opponents brought up at one point, I think in their rebuttal, uh, well, how does enforcing bad laws generate respect for the rule of law? Under that logic, the government should just choose which certain laws, or not even the federal government, like cities and states, the neo-confederacy, if you will, nullifying federal law, choosing which laws they think are good and which laws they think are bad, and enforcing based on that ethic. Or, um, as a society that's rooted in the rule of law, um, rooted in a constitution, we believe that we should have an immigration policy uh, that's followed, and if appropriate revisions need to be made, it should be done through a legislative process. Uh, I, just one last thing. Uh, I don't want to go too long. Um, the the idea as well that this is a this is that current immigration policy uh, is something that's not in accordance with the will of the American people is simply false. I mean, Gallup polls show that less than thirty percent of Americans support increased immigration. I think our legislators and our administrators should listen to the will of the people on this issue and begin enforcing immigration law so we don't have more uh, instance, more incidents like Tony Bologna's family or Kate Steinle's uh, murder. Thank you. Hands down, I want to take a couple of our, of our internet-based questions. The first one for the libertarians. What is the philosophical basis for libertarians respecting other human beings? Why are human beings worthy of dignity in your view? <laughs> I wish I could take credit for that question. I mean, libertarianism is based on like a natural rights tradition and that the belief that not all libertarians believe this, but um, the founding fathers who were libertarians believed that, God, that your rights were given by a deity. Um, I think is, is the question why we should respect human beings. Yep. I mean, why, why are they worthy? Why are human beings worthy of dignity, in your view? I, mean, I would yeah. Yeah, I, I would suggest if that principle isn't self-evident to you, that you not shake my hand afterwards. I would like to avoid meeting you. <laughs> I've, humanity is like a beautiful thing. There's lots of things that go bad in the world, but the amount of progress we've achieved, the inherent good in people. Um, I don't know. I'm sure conservatives think the same thing. I don't think this is a libertarian versus conservative issue. I don't know. A question for the conservatives. Um, if, uh, as was mentioned, the word naturalization is in the Constitution but not immigration, how does the government have the right to control who crosses borders? Do you want to take this? I'd like to take okay, this. Go Sorry. For it. <laughs> um, so two things. Uh, one, I'd like to see one quote from a supposedly libertarian founder saying we should have open borders. I'd like to see that. 
Um, and I like to, us to think through the implications that the government should control naturalization but not have any say whatsoever uh, in, in immigration. I mean, of all people, I know they've been disavowed by our libertarian opponents, uh, though not all people libertarians would disavow Murray Rothbard. Even he was against open borders. Uh, he said it was against freedom of association, that allowing people into a community without the community's voluntary consent, using public transit, using public services, that was unjust. Um, and I'd like to point to a final thing as well in terms of arguing about the founding. One of the very first acts passed by Congress was the Naturalization Act of 1790. Um, you hear, oh, the naturalization, where's the immigration? No, it regulated immigration. It was an immigration act, and you can look this up. And so uh, the reality is is that can, the America has always had immigration policy, and we've always understood that to have a nation, uh, we have to have federal government control over that. Uh, and that's why the Constitution explicitly gives the federal government the power to regulate immigration. Question. We have a, a hand up here. Thanks. Uh, I have a question for the conservatives. Um, you said earlier in your talk that expanded access to opioids um, led to deaths. Uh, I'm. Uh, I would uh, like to know what your response then would be to the fact that um, since 2011, the government has actually made it harder to get opioids, and opioid prescribing has decreased per capita, and yet uh, opioid overdoses have increased by 84%. Yeah, so it's a complex crisis, but I think there's a couple important le lessons for us as we're dealing with drug policy. The first is that the fact that there was there was a black market for illicit opioids even while there was still a legal market. Uh, the problem with opioids in particular is how addicting they are. Uh, and so people and entire communities were hooked on opioids and are hooked on opioids. Uh, and so they can get them legally, they can get them illegally. The point is that this sort of cultural phenomenon and the individual addiction drives the desire to get opioids more than the legal status does. And the point of this is that the analogies to the past oftentimes in drug policy are misleading because when individuals may not even show a propensity to get addicted to something and then an entire community can get addicted and even if you make it uh, – making it legal makes it worse. Sometimes making it legal doesn't have much effect. I mean like Cato Institute put out a report like two years ago that said legalizing marijuana in Colorado hasn't really changed usage rates. Uh, but with opioids, there is a far greater rate of addiction and societal dependence and so increasing availability actually does – uh, it seems logically to correlate with increased uh, addiction. The, the problem with the libertarian position at root is that it is committed fundamentally to people being able to choose these things and so being able to purchase them without restriction. I mean, in the libertarian world, there's little they can say philosophically to prevent heroin from being sold on Amazon. And I, I struggle to imagine how that won't increase use. I mean, if you thought the heroin crisis was bad now, imagine what this country could do with free two-day shipping. Question for conservatives. If conservatives are not willing to accept the several hundred thousand uh, undocumented migrants coming across the border from countries, uh, especially though, uh, many of them from countries with the most draconian anti-abortion laws on earth, what makes you think that uh, you'll be able to accommodate the 50 million people, uh, Amer additional Americans uh, uh, born instead of, you said, aborted under Roe v. Wade? That's my question. Sure. Uh, I think Josh's point was not that the country 
demographically just couldn't handle that many people as though this is like a Malthusian chart where we're running out of space, uh, but rather that because our current culture is so inundated with identity politics and segregating people based on cultural and ethnic lines rather than assimilating them, it would be much harder to assimilate groups of people who don't share our culture and wouldn't be educated in our values than it was in 1900. This is as opposed to if we were to stop abortions, which I believe is the greatest tragedy of the 20th century, those children ideally would be brought up in homes and in families, and the society as a whole should do their best to make sure that that happens, which is a completely different situation than bringing in massive amounts of people over the border, combination of legally and illegally. Can I add just one thing to that real quick? Thank you. Um, no, I think, and that, I think Chris hits at a very important point, the assimilation point. It's not, it's not a numbers thing. Um, here's the thing. A people... As the Declaration acknowledges in its very first sentence, is a distinct group. And in America, what defines us as a people, to paraphrase John Jay, um, is, is that we are people with diverse backgrounds, but what makes us an American people is our shared language, history, and reverence for the political principles found in our founding documents. The self-government is a virtue. It has to be taught and cultivated. We aren't just all, America isn't, we aren't the united markets of America. We aren't just radical individuals floating around associating with each other in markets. We are a people. And if we lose that idea of a people, of being bound together by a shared heritage and shared political uh, virtues and political principles, we no longer have a nation. Do we have a last question for the libertarians? All right. Uh, so why would libertarians be against, say, child porn if it were generated by a machine? It uh, makes a market. It only seems to – doesn't seem to harm anyone. I just want to hear a principled argument against it. Are you arguing that child pornography does not harm children? Uh, not if it's made by, like, virtual – like, by a computer or something like that, which it actually is, and that's what there's been a lot of debate A lot of our child pornography is used to ban, like, manga or something like this from Japan – and, you know, I just want to hear a principled argument against this uh, if it doesn't harm children. Thank you. Child pornography would not be compatible with libertarianism because it involves infringing upon the rights of another human being who cannot consent to the activities. I have no idea about what this machine is, so I can't comment on that. Like I will only... Or something like that. To make it concrete, like a picture. If someone, like, like an artistic thing, like, why would you be against this? Um, I guess I'll just wait to see when that becomes a problem in the future and let the Supreme Court decide. I don't... I... What would you say, Taylor? Do you have anything? Uh, I didn't think this would be the relevant experience I would need for the debate, they should have chosen a different debater if it was. Okay, thank you all for your questions. I'm sorry we couldn't take more. We do have uh, one last section, so if we could bring the volume down a bit. Uh, the last thing we're going to do is hear closing remarks from both sides. We're going to start with the libertarians. They'll have four minutes, and then we'll turn it over to the conservatives, and they'll close it out with their four minutes. 
Now you face a choice. Consider your freedom, your material well-being too. Ask yourself whether you side with those who are dedicated to each or those who have promised both and delivered neither. If you, like me, would choose the former, all that remains is to honestly assess whether, as we have argued this evening, conservative policies have failed to make us more free or more prosperous. A broad conservative policy has been a circus of gratuitous force, spendthrift showmanship promising security by military parade, theatrical deterrence conceived in forgetfulness of the founders' admonitions has swelled a standing army and raised a worldwide archipelago of military bases. As conservatives engorge national defense to needlessly overwhelming superiority, the rights of our citizens become prey to the needs of its ever-expanding scope. Still, we should not impugn the motives of conservatives, who have often viewed an expansive foreign policy as a tool in the noble attempt to protect the rights of others. Rather, we must regret that such attempts have largely failed. If, by wizardry, conservatives could create liberal democracies from ashes, there might be reason to reconsider their methods, but experience suggests that their magic wand is nothing more than a stick. On the border, conservatives denounce free markets, not by name, but in the language of immigration control. Why, here, do they set aside liberty when they proclaim it so loudly elsewhere? Why do conservatives reject the aspirations, the skills, and the entrepreneurship of immigrants, not to speak of the freedom of the domestic businesses who would hire them? It cannot be security. Immigrants commit less crime than natives. It cannot be prosperity. Immigrants increase our pool of human capital and allow us to produce more. Perhaps it is fear for the fate of American values. But American culture is not monolithic. It is defined by its dynamism. And immigrants participate in that one great shared American tradition enshrined in wagon trains in frontier towns, road trips and new lives in new states, the quest for freedom and opportunity. At home, even at home, conservatives misled by a nostalgia for an idealized past bear their fists in the quixotic ambition to suppress individual liberty and voluntary exchange. Concern for others' rights does not dissuade them from futile compulsion. Instead, they dictate to their neighbors how they should live and how they should die. They take grenades and rifles to the streets to attempt once more the Sisyphean task of prohibition. If conservatism has stumbled, if it has betrayed itself through inconsistency, conservatives should not despair. Their attitude and practice too given to custom and coercion contains the kernel of political wisdom an appreciation of liberty. So long as conservatives fail to resolve their own priorities, their policies will continue to be erratic and ineffectual. But holding fast to freedom, they will find that they better achieve their own goals through consistency, their wealth enlarged by exchange, and their beliefs protected by law. Tonight, you have been offered two competing visions, the solace of familiarity and the opportunity of freedom. Do not settle for the warm familiarity of conservatism. Behind tranquility, it hides the trust of force. Choose instead as an American. Choose liberty. Choose command of your own life and reject the paternalism of the state, however it might be disguised. Our hope as humans rests on neither the imitation of the past nor the wisdom of the few, but on the striving of each of us, together in community and independent in thought, to claim for ourselves the lives of our aspirations. So choose libertarianism. 
Thank you. Republican self-government is a rare and fragile thing. It is, as Reagan said, never more than one generation away from extinction. So the question before us tonight is, how do we, as a civil society, cultivate self-governing citizens capable of passing the torch of liberty to the next generation? Conservatism argues that this is the most important issue facing Americans today, even more important than the question of how to restore limited government. Because you can only have limited government when individual citizens are capable of self-government. Libertarianism, on the other hand, is a contradiction in terms. It desires the most minimal government possible while also demanding the maximum degree of license for individuals to destroy themselves. It is so concerned with the freedom of the present generation, that it does not bother to concern itself with building a political community capable of passing freedom on to future generations. What will happen, we should ask, if the radical individualism championed by libertarianism creates citizens so obsessed with indulging in their private lives that they no longer prove capable of defending liberty from internal or external threats? Libertarianism Libertarians will tell you about the importance of liberty, but they have nothing to say about the importance of using it well. In the long run, this problem of neglecting to think about the future is what makes libertarianism fundamentally unsustainable, which is why libertarianism has never governed in a political community, and it never will. (laughs) Tonight, we have demonstrated how a conservative foreign policy believes in prudential restraint. Our our libertarian friends talked a lot about restraint, and it's interesting that they don't seem to care very much about the concept of restraint when it comes to shooting heroin. But they're all about restraint when it comes to cutting the budgets of our men and women in uniform. Rather than be inflexibly dogmatic, conservatism embraces a foreign policy dedicated to securing American independence through every available means. We have demonstrated how the legalization of physician-assisted suicide, rather than increasing individual autonomy, actually fatally undermines it. The conservative belief in the intrinsic worth of every human being places upon us a duty to protect the right to life at every stage, from conception through natural death. The right to life must never become a duty to die. Killing must never become cheaper caring. We have demonstrated how an immigration policy, which ignores the importance of Americanization, eats away at our national foundations. Rather than turning the flood of illegal immigration into a tsunami, we must instead begin vigorously enforcing our current laws to protect American lives and American values. Conservatism recognizes that the Americans of today have no right to squander the blessings of liberty for the Americans of the future. Conservatism is the only political philosophy capable of protecting liberty because it creates the type of society where sustainable liberty can thrive. Responsible self-government 
was the guiding principle of the American founding and the foundation of American greatness. We should not abandon it for the fool's gold that is libertarianism. Thank you, and good night. First, to congratulate all four of our debaters on a fantastic, you know, job well done tonight. I thought it was really, really interesting. I remember actually the first libertarianism versus conservatism debate that I watched almost a decade ago, and I remember being so impressed by the debaters back then. And I'm even more impressed now that you all look so young to me now that I'm in my 30s. <laughs> it was great. Thank you to Heritage for hosting us. Thank you to my friends at Cato for thinking of me for this opportunity. If you are, if you enjoyed this event, you may be interested in the next issue of Reason Magazine, which just coincidentally will be out in about three weeks and is an intra-libertarian debate issue. So it's not going to get into the sort of conservative side of things quite as much, but it's issues where libertarians disagree with each other. And we, we've gotten people on both sides arguing those, and um, we have a bunch of point counterpoints that are going to be in that issue in about three weeks. So keep an eye out for that. At this time, I want to remind everybody that there is a reception afterwards, so please feel free to stick around in the foyer or up on the roof, uh, have a chance to come up and congratulate our debaters and say hello, uh, and thank you all so much for being here.